0: We come this Lord's Day to the fourth installment of our little series on comfort and encouragement for believers in time of troubles and tribulations. One of the issues that causes grief to the saints who are in tribulation is the apparent prosperity of the wicked. They seem to be triumphing while the Lord's people are humbled and oppressed. How can God permit such injustice to flourish? We are tempted to wonder. The psalmist in Psalm 73 began to be envious of the wicked, he said. What good did it do for him to obey God when evil men prosper and all the while act corruptly and speak in favor of and advocacy of oppression? But there is a cure when we enter into God's presence to worship Him, then we come to understand the true position of the wicked. God has set them in slippery places. Their position is very dangerous, but they only come to find out when God's judgment suddenly falls upon them. The cure for our despondency at the unfairness of the wicked prospering is to worship God and trust in His power to set all things right one day. Then we must rebuke ourselves for being so foolish and ignorant of God's ways and God's power. We are like stupid beasts before our God. But even in our own beastliness, God has mercy on us. God blesses us. God keeps us ever with Him. God holds us by our right hand. God guides us. God brings us one day into His glory. What condescension of our God towards us that He should so love us and care for us and protect us and we as stupid before Him. Meanwhile, one day God destroys the wicked. And finally at the end we discover the purpose of it all. Why did God allow us to see and wonder and sorrow at the sight of the wicked prospering? Because by Doing so, we were driven to seek our God and come to understand His mighty power and providence over all things. It is good for us to draw near to God. That's why He brought these travails and troubles into our lives. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul the Apostle gives us a recipe for the comfort of believers in times of tribulation and trouble. First, we are to understand the absolute promise of the judgment of the wicked one day soon. But God has appointed us to obtain salvation by Christ Jesus. You see the contrast between the wicked subject to wrath and God's people subject unto life eternal by Jesus Christ appointed by God to salvation. And not only so, but salvation because Jesus died for us, to save us, that we should live together with Him. Paul then describes some of the means of comfort for the church. God has appointed ministers and pastors and teachers to exhort and teach and admonish believers. We are to warn believers who stumble, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men, of course. We're never to return evil for evil to anybody, but follow after that which is good. All of these exhortations are for the comfort and rejoicing of believers. And then Paul says we are to rejoice always. We are to pray constantly, striving to cultivate a persistent state of prayer unto God our Father. We are to be thankful for everything. That is God's will in Christ concerning us. But sometimes it is hard to be thankful for the so-called bad things that God brings into our lives. But our assurance is that we ought to be thankful because we know God is working all things together for our good. We need to trust in our God to do the right thing. The right things for us that need to be done even if we cannot understand what their purposes are. Paul warns us against quenching the Holy Spirit or despising, prophesying, or preaching. Paul's point is that God is using the Holy Spirit and His preachers to bring to our minds the truth about God's love and power on our behalf so that we might have comfort in times of adversity. That God will be faithful to sanctify His people completely is His promise and preserve our whole spirit and soul and body blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great comfort for believers in time of distress to think that God has promised that one day we will be presented perfect before Him in love. God who called us to that glorious end is faithful to do it for us. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we find that God has chosen us from the beginning unto salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Think of it. Chosen by God to salvation from the beginning. This great truth of God's election of His beloved people to be saved to the uttermost and for eternity is an exceeding great comfort for all who trust in Jesus. Notice that Paul exclaims that we give thanks for this thundering truth, that God has chosen us unto salvation. The end result is this, that we obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is preparing for us a great glory. In the end, it will be manifest unto us and upon us that we have received the glory of Christ. This is the great comfort that God has given to us, that we are chosen in Him unto salvation and to receive that glory that Christ is busy preparing for us to receive. We are loved by God the Father. We are loved by His Son, the Lord Jesus. By His grace, we have been given an everlasting consolation and good hope. God will comfort us. God will establish us in every good word and work. So whenever we need comfort in our tribulations, we ought to remember these promises and pray to the Lord Jesus to comfort our hearts and continue to work in us to obey the truth. Ultimately, all our comforts come, don't they, from the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We celebrate each Lord's Day when we gather around His table and remember what He did for us at Calvary. His body was torn for us. His blood shed for the remission of our sins. Our great comfort comes from the great discomfort that Christ undertook for us when He died in our place on the cross. In all of this, we find our ultimate comfort in the face of trials and of troubles. Now, Jesus Himself directly provides us with words Of comfort, we read Matthew's Gospel, the eleventh chapter, this morning, where Jesus excoriates the wicked who refused his miracles and refused his gospel preaching. Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe unto you, Bethsaida! Woe unto you, Capernaum! These are places where Christ performed his greatest miracles and preached the gospel, and yet wholesale these. Cities Did not believe Him, would not follow Him, did not trust in Him. The mighty works wouldn't convince these religiously instructed people. But they would have converted Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, Jesus said. Now here's an amazing thing. The Lord Jesus witnessed to these cities of Israel They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't believe. But he said if the same witness had been given to these foreign pagan cities, they would have repented and believed. And some people will seize hold of this and say, well, that's not fair. God should give everybody everything equal. That's not what the scriptures teach us, is it? For when we are judged, we are judged because of our sin. And when we are saved, it's because of God's kindness and grace to us. You see, a true believer who understands the Scripture knows that all the evil and sin that we commit is on us. It's our fault. And all the goodness and grace and glory is all God's fault, if you want to put it that way. And if you bridle at that, if you think, well, that's not fair, And you don't like what God told Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And whom I will I harden. And who are we to question God on these matters. But you see that the mind and the heart and the faith and so forth of these cities. Couldn't save them from their destruction could it. They had gospel preached and miracles performed and yet and yet they're going to utter destruction. This should put the lie to the notion, should it not, that whatever happens in terms of our deciding whether to believe on Jesus or not is is all our own doing. God just lays it out there, and then He leaves it to us to exercise faith and trust, and, and everybody has a choice, and some of them will choose to do that, and others will choose not. And then you get the sneaking, creeping suspicion, you see under that scheme, that the reason people trust in Jesus is because they're just a little bit better than those unbelievers. They're just a little more thoughtful, and they have just a little more humility, and so forth and so on. And pretty soon, you see, it's up to us. We're the deciding voice in this matter, not God. Remember last Lord's Day, we spoke of how God chose us for these things. And some people say that's not fair. Now we chose God before He first chose us. That's what they think the Bible teaches, but that's not the truth. But here we go with what the Lord Jesus says in thanksgiving for this circumstance. At Matthew 11 at verse 25, the Lord Jesus, after laying out the judgment of those who heard and did not believe, he says this, At this time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Now really this text is a powerful text before the truth that whatever faith we have to believe, the gospel is given to us by God. It's not of ourselves. Because notice, Jesus says that the gospel and the miracles were hidden from all these cities. How can that be? Because they were literally shown to them, you see. The miracles were carried out in their presence and in their view. And the gospel was preached to their ears. It's not that they were deprived of gospel truth and of the witness of the miracles as to Christ's bona fides. But in the end, they couldn't perceive it. Their ears were stopped up. Their eyes were blinded, you see. And that's the way it is with all mankind unless God reveals these things to them. He's not talking about merely preaches it to them or enacts these miracles before them. No, that's not enough, you see, because... Our senses and our minds are darkened by sin. We're enslaved to our sin. Our will is in bondage. So that it takes a revelation by God to a man, to a woman, to a child. Before their eyes will be opened and they will see and their ears will be unstopped and they will hear. It is an act of God that has to be executed against the person before the truth of the gospel will be disclosed to him. Not merely a preaching of it, but also there must be with it the work of the Spirit and the grace of faith given. All these things were shown to the wise and prudent and to the babes, but they apparently in their own wisdom and prudence and knowledge, they were completely oblivious to the truth of Christ's gospel but they were revealed to babes. That is, the simple, the unsophisticated, the helpless, the very people that shouldn't be able to see or understand or perceive these things. Nevertheless, it was God's pleasure to reveal the gospel to this class of people, these babes. And of course, he's talking about his disciples. I wonder if they took offense at it. He's talking about His disciples. But you remember in another place Jesus said, unless ye be converted and become as babes or as little children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless ye be converted. So even if you are a babe, even that's not on you. That's something God did. He made you into that what we might say is pliable and unpretentious and helpless being so that the gospel can be revealed to you as it was not revealed by God to the religious and the wise and the prudent. You know, we highly prize prudence, don't we? And I hear the Lord saying that the prudence of men is no guarantee that the gospel will be revealed to them by God. And certainly in their own prudence, they'll never embrace what the Scriptures teach about Jesus. But it pleased God to reveal it to the simple, unsophisticated babes whose hearts God had prepared to make them have those characteristics so that they might be suitable to be saved, and as the Lord Jesus had preached otherwise. The former rejected and refused to believe even though they had all the wisdom and prudence. And the latter trusted in the Lord Jesus. So you see, it's not by ability or intelligence or good judgment or wisdom that a man is expected to receive the things that be of Christ. Rather, it's by the revelation of God into the heart prepared to be like a child that God works salvation in for His glory. It's according to whom the Father savingly revealed it to. Faith is not naturally in us. Oh, we'll believe the most preposterous lies that anybody can tell. Yesterday, a woman that I know was raging on and on about all these things she sees on the internet, social media, scientific truths supposedly posted by people. All these people go by these fake handles and names. I told her, real scientists don't reveal their data on social media using fake aliases. Okay, They put it in their own name and normally they publish a paper about it. They don't talk about it on their YouTube channel. And of course, she rejected that. Then she commenced to repeat awful, nasty, wicked claims about President Obama's wife, which I will not repeat here. I told her that if you believe that, then you are nuts. No Christian should repeat such lies as that. People will believe all kind of things that aren't true. That's not the kind of faith we're talking about. We're talking about the God-given faith to believe the truth about Jesus. To believe God's Word. That's the miracle. Not that you can't convince people to believe something that's true or false, but rather, believing faith, saving faith is not naturally in us. Faith is given to us as the Father determines. And no amount of education and wisdom or good judgment can make the difference. Well, we don't like to hear that because that makes it all of God and none of us. And all of us secretly want to believe that we were just a little more perspicacious and a little more intelligent, a little more wise and a little more thoughtful than those people down the road that are wicked and refuse to believe. But no, it's not that way at all. God has made us to be able to believe in what He has revealed to us. But then Jesus says, why did God proceed along these lines? Lines which the world would say are unfair and stupid. Totally contrary to the way we think things should work. Jesus says why in verse 26 in Matthew 11, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. You see, it was what God wanted. God did what pleased Him to do. And is this what Paul taught us in Ephesians 1 and so many other places? It was according to the good pleasure of His will that He chose His people for salvation. Well, that ought to be a real comfort to us. You see, we've been chosen by God to be saved because of the good pleasure of His will. For by grace you're saved through faith. That is, the good gift of God By grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The faith even is God's gift to believe the promises that He makes. So then all our salvation is not by us. To rephrase that, none of our salvation is by us, but it is totally of God's doing. And that is comfort, you see because we could fail, we would fail. If it was up to us to keep our faith propped up, reminded of that image of the person who had an inflatable parrot sitting on their shoulder, but it had a leak, and so it would slowly collapse, and he had a little pump that he would pump it back up again. That would be how our faith would be. It would be broken. It would be no good. It would collapse in time of trouble. But see, one of the comforts that we have in tribulation is that God is the one who gave us the faith and He's the one who will sustain the faith. He'll keep it strong, even though sometimes it seems like it wavers. You remember when Peter was in great distress because Christ was being taken and put to death and he was humiliated and terrified and terribly disappointed and We preached on that several weeks ago. He was subject to the greatest sorrow and tribulation, much greater than any of us have faced. But you remember what Jesus told him, that the devil would sift him like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And this is the reality of it, is the comfort to us that God has done all this work in us, not ourselves. Because if it was left up to us, we would fail. But God cannot fail. He has all power. He's the one that decided who to reveal the gospel to. He's the one that converted us to make us like little children to believe the promises that were made and to not rely in ourselves, but to just cast ourselves upon the strong one who could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has done what delights Him Not necessarily what delights us, although it does come to delight us, doesn't it? And because of that, he will not fail or change his mind or be discouraged in any way and neither, therefore, should we. Christ knows all things, especially about the Father, and he has revealed them to his people by Christ. We read this in verse 27 where Christ says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Now this verse is in this location for a reason. It's to testify that Christ knows what He's talking about when He says that the Father was pleased to reveal the gospel to the little children, not to the wise and prudent it's all of God's mercy and none of the strengths of the little children. None of the virtues of the little children. Christ is saying here, believe me because I'm the one who knows the Father. In fact, I'm the only one who knows the Father. And what I'm telling you about the Father and His purpose towards His people, whom He loves, whom He delights in, is true. And not only that, He's given all of the people that He loves to me. And He makes this clear in John chapter 10, of course, that the sheep have been given to Christ by the Father. And no man can take them from Him because no man can take them from the hand of His Father either. They're united in purpose as to the saving of the sheep that God has given to Christ. And here too, the Lord Jesus asserts, that the only people who can know the Father are people to whom the Son reveals the Father. Because only the Son knows the Father by nature. Because He is the second person of the Trinity and He was always from all eternity past with the Father and the Holy Ghost. And now He's come down from heaven, been incarnate in human flesh. And as Hebrews 1 says, He is the very express image of the Godhead. He is the brightness of the glory of God. That's what Jesus is. And so whatever Jesus tells us about the Father and His purposes and His powers and His delights, we can take it to the bank because He's revealed these things to His people. It is the truth about the pleasure of the Father toward the babes That it's known to Christ and declared by Christ to us. That we might not put our trust in ourselves, but only in Jesus. Only in the good pleasure of the Father toward us. Then at verse 28, these well-known words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, men believe that their fates rest upon their own shoulders. We all have to work hard. We all have to labor. We all have to bend our backs. We all have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's the, the logic and reasoning of this world in its sin and folly. So we labor to save ourselves, to improve ourselves, to please God by our good works. This is the central tenet of all false human religions. That there must be something we can do to please God, to appease His wrath, to get on His good side, to obtain His blessing, whether it be doing good deeds to the poor or sacrificing virgins in a volcano. Everybody has their scheme they've worked out. They've deluded themselves into believing is the way to please God and to be in His favor. All false religions are based on works righteousness. That is, the works of the sinner to satisfy God who is offended at our sin. But we can never achieve what we must have in order to accomplish this purpose. And we are burdened not only by our sins, but by our failures that we carry along with us. And the burden becomes too much to bear. We're stooped under the heavy load. And you remember in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan wrote about the pilgrim who had this huge burden of sin tied on his back. And he could barely move about under this heavy burden. And he sought to be released from it, did he not? And it rolled away off his back at the foot of the cross and into a hole in the ground where he never saw it again, the writer puts it. This is the burden which the Lord Jesus has determined to take away from His people. People who are Burdened and heavy laden with loads of sin and regret and sorrow. But if we come to Christ, He takes away those burdens. He bears them away in His own body on the tree, as the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 2. Who bore our sins in His own body on the tree? It's not that Jesus merely excuses our sin. He's not like some modern preachers who just tell the people, now you don't have to worry about all that stuff. God just, He just overlooks that. As long as you try hard to be a decent person. See there again, the burden is being shifted back on to the backs of the people. But people think that Christ just unilaterally forgives all these things. But that's not what the Scriptures teach at all, is it? It's not that Jesus merely excuses them, but rather He takes them up from us and disposes of them by His own labor and suffering in our place. The old Puritans used to say that Christ's body is the carriage. Upon which our sins are laid and upon which he carries them away and disposes of them out of our sight forever. Body of Christ, a great carriage to take away our sin. They were laid on him and he was punished for them. And as for our other cares, when we trust in Jesus, we come to understand that our happiness and rest and peace in the end won't be what we accomplished ourselves. But what Jesus has promised, He has and will accomplish for us. We love to sing that song, done is the work that saves. Once and forever done, finished the righteousness that clothes the unrighteous one. And this is the reality of it, that when we come to Jesus, He takes away our burdens and our labor because He carries them away in His own body. And He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we're justified on account of His blood shedding on the cross so that all the responsibility for saving ourselves comes to an end because Jesus saves us Himself. The one to whom we submit ourselves, Jesus goes on, the yoke of Christ. He is no slave driver or unreasonable master like the devil is or like the law is. You know, in our lives, we recognize that whatever the Lord Jesus requires is reasonable because He is meek and lowly of heart. That's what He says. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Christ is saying that He, as our Master, is reasonable and gentle with His people. Not like the law, the terrors of the law, and not like even our own recriminations at our discovery that we have failed miserably to obey God or to succeed in all that we put our hands to. Imagine though, the Creator God, the Lord Jesus in His humanity is meek and lowly of heart. There is the proof that Christ is divine if for no other reason that nobody in this world could imagine if they had made all things that they would be themselves meek and lowly of heart. We would strut we would demand that people give us plaques and prizes and recognize our great accomplishments. We would get patents issued for our great inventions. We would demand rents from people that they could not use our creations without paying a price. All sorts of things that we would do. And yet the one who made all things was meek and lowly of heart. In fact, You go through the Gospels, you don't see Jesus. I can't say that He never mentions it. It's left up to the apostles later, especially the Apostle John and the writer of Hebrews to point out that He made all things. And yet here He is in His humanity, meek and lowly of heart. We learn in our lives that we almost never see someone with power and authority being meek and lowly of heart at the same time, do we? We have rulers, we have bosses, we have politicians, and none of them are meek and lowly of heart. One in a thousand you'll find of a person in authority is meek and lowly of heart. This is a strange thing, and yet it's understandable if we think about it ourselves. We probably wouldn't be meek and lowly of heart either if we had those positions. But I love the words of that hymn that we sing about Jesus. No one like Him is so high and holy. No, not one. And yet, no friend is so meek and lowly. No, not one. And so it is of our Lord Jesus. There is comfort in Christ's salvation and in submitting ourselves to His protection and rule that we will never get if we try to submit ourselves only to the law, to keep all the commandments, to work out our own righteousness, and attempt to please God in that way. And you see, as His sheep, we will find rest and peace when we obey the gentle commandments of our Good Shepherd. And so around the Lord's table, we celebrate how He saved us by carrying away our burdens and our sins and our sorrows in His own body on the tree. Here is the comfort of the believer. Here's the promised comfort which Christ told us about. There's nothing more meek and lowly of heart than a sacrificial lamb And Christ has fulfilled what He told these people at the end of Matthew 11. He has shown Himself to be meek and lowly of heart so that we might find rest for our souls. And this is a great comfort to us. And let us always remember when we are in trials and tribulations that the One who has redeemed us has taken away the real burden and the real labor that we formerly operated under. He's taken it all on Himself. And He's promised us eternal life and glory. How can we not take comfort from that? Around the table we remember the sacrifice He made. You think about it. He preached these comforting words to these people and never mentioned the awful sacrifice He would have to make to bring it about, did He? He didn't whine or complain or brandish this truth at them in such a way as to cause them any concern at all about how He would accomplish what He did. It's as if He was telling people, believe on Me, trust in Me, I'll take care of it. And one day He went to the cross and praise God, He took care of it for us. You remember in Isaiah 53, it said that Christ would go to His death like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shears is dumped. So He opened not His mouth. And so there was that meekness and lowliness in Christ. The meekness and lowliness of an obedient, silent, sacrificial lamb Praise God, He offered up the Lord Jesus to be our Lamb, to take away our sin, to be meek and lowly of heart, so that we might find rest for our souls. Let's give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O God, our Father, we rejoice to come before You in the Savior's name and to rejoice over the meekness and lowliness of Christ in whom we find rest for our souls, that He went to the cross and despised the shame, that He took away our sin by making Himself a sacrifice in our place. And we thank You that though He is meek and lowly towards us, He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah against all our foes. And we thank You that He has such care for His people. And provide such comfort for us by His sacrifice and by His great working of salvation. And by His great teaching and His glorious gospel. Help us to meditate upon the Lord's body given for us as we partake of his feast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 96 in the black book. Man of sorrows, what a name! For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior! Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Number 96.